Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Isn't that great? That is so good because this is really the passion of our hearts and that is to make disciples and appreciate Spencer and Emily and Dave. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that maiden voyage of giving, uh, giving us the announcement. He did a pretty good job, don't you think? Did Dave do a good job? Let's, let's let Dave know he did a good job. He needs that. That is so good. If you want to reference that again, the video that you, you, you just saw, you can go to YouTube and you can pick it up there because it's something we want to resource you with. So if you forget things or can't remember what you need to talk about with your kids, then you can go right there. Well, today what I want to do is I want to contend for freedom in our lives. And I, I know this. I know that sometimes it, it is really dark before the light breaks through. And I also know that some of you are dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. You're dealing with things in life that just almost seem to bury you. And today what I want you to know, what I really hope for you, is there is freedom in Jesus for you. There's freedom in Jesus for your marriage, for your family, for your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And today, I want us to experience that freedom. I want us to contend for the freedom that Jesus has for each one of us. So let's do this. Let's pray together. Father, we contend for the freedom that you bring to us. We know that it doesn't just happen accidentally. We don't just wander into freedom, but it's intentional. It's something that you've given to us. And today, Lord, we open our hearts so that you can bring freedom to us. Let us break through today. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Well, if you've happened to look at the back of your bulletin, you already know where we're going this morning in this weekend's message. And I can tell you that you're excited. Um, you, you knew it was coming. It's a message about money. Uh, we all love these weekends, and some of you brought guests are especially thrilled today. You're excited about this message, and you're, you're saying things like, oh, I, I hope the one weekend I bring my friend, the one weekend that my neighbor shows up, they talk about money in church. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You know, we've been in a series called Broken to Be Whole, and we're asking the question, what's broken? And we're learning about what is broken in our own lives, and if you don't acknowledge what's broken, it's impossible to fix. And wouldn't you agree with me that the use of money can be a primary source of brokenness and discord in marriage today? That debt and self-indulgent ways money is used can create incredible strife between husband and wife. As a communicator, what I do and what I've learned is to pick up nonverbal cues of the audience, and it's especially true when there's a lot of people in the room. You can sense when people are uncomfortable. There's this um, general unrest and shifting of body language. I know some of you are fighting against the instinct to squirm right now because the topic is on money, and it makes you uncomfortable. You're working really hard not to look uncomfortable or defensive. So let's do this. We can all even close our eyes. And if you need to get the squirms out, get them out. Wiggle, move, you know, do what you need to do. But, but you might even be saying, hey, Ron, I'm cool with it. You, you, can, you can talk about money. It doesn't bother me. You know, I, I don't know what it is about this subject that makes us so uncomfortable to talk about in church. Because we talk about money in just about every area of our life. We read books on it. We have meetings about it. There are songs about it, movies about it. There are conversations at work about it. But when we come to church, it feels a little bit uncomfortable. 
And I think the reason for that is this. At its core is a fundamental and basic misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Now, here's what I mean. Imagine that your life is a dresser, a chest of drawers. Most of us think of our faith as one of the drawers in the dresser of life. It's one of the many drawers. There's the relationship drawer. There's the marriage drawer. There's the work drawer. There's the entertainment drawer. And then there is this money drawer. And we're okay with coming to church and letting the preacher open the faith drawer because that's what we do in church. And we're okay if the preacher opens the relationship drawer because that's what we do in church. But when the money drawer is open, there's a good chance he's going to get his fingers slammed. Because church is a place that you talk about faith. It's a place that you talk about relationship. But money, that's a different category. That's a different compartment altogether. Now here's what we must understand. The moment we start to compartmentalize our faith, we're no longer talking about the Christian faith. Because at the core of the Christian faith is the lordship of Jesus Christ. At the core of what we believe and what we hold dear to in our hearts is the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that when we say that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life, we are saying, Jesus, my faith in you is the dresser that all the drawers of life fit into. That my faith isn't one of the drawers, that my faith is the dresser. That my faith is the umbrella, and every area of my life is under the authority of Jesus Christ. That my life is fully and totally surrendered to Jesus Christ as a Christ follower. My faith is something that I need to see and understand. It is the dresser. So the moment we say my faith is just a drawer, just a compartment, we're no longer talking about the Christian faith. These past few weeks, we've tackled some pretty tough subjects. If you weren't here, I just really encourage you to go onto the podcast or get the, uh, the CDs. These are subjects that we all need to hear about, that we don't want to sweep under the rug. We're, we've talked these last two weeks about our sexual purity. And that when my sexuality is not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it causes extreme brokenness in my life and in my marriage and in my family. I've also discovered that my money, when not under His Lordship, can be just as devastating. So those of you who are Christians, what you are saying is that you are a follower of Jesus and that everything, including my money, falls under the authority of Jesus Christ. When you study the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus loved opening the drawer labeled money. He loved to open that drawer and pick around in it and, and kind of mess it up for people. He, he loved to open that drawer because if you look at, at his most common application to teach truth, it was money. He applied truth to money more than any other subject. 16 of his 38 parables, he used money as his primary application. And if you take money and you compare it to his teachings on prayer, there are five times as many verses about money as there are about prayer. So Jesus liked opening this drawer. He he liked to pull it open and, and talk about it openly. Why did he do that? Why is there so much focus on money in Scripture and in the teachings of Jesus? 
Well, it's because money tells the story of your heart. Money tells the story of the journey of your heart and where your heart is going. Money is what's portrayed as God's chief competition in Scripture. It's what can take our hearts away from Him. Money literally tells the story of what we love and what's most important to us. This is how Jesus explained it in Matthew 6.21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us, plain and simple, money tells the story of your heart. So if you're a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, what would I conclude if I looked at your finances? Now, it would be safe for you to turn the tables on me and ask me the same question. The preacher doesn't always get that kind of prerogative just to ask the question and let you answer it. But I have to answer the question as well. I have to look at my own life, and I want to tell you what I found. A few months ago, Annette and I went through Dave Ramsey together, and we found out some things about our stewardship. And what we found out is this. We found out that we are generous givers but we are poor savers. And so what we've done in the last four or five months is we've met with a financial advisor, we've opened our our books, we've opened our finances, and we've just said to him, please help us be a better steward of what God has entrusted in our lives. That we don't only only want to be just generous givers, but we want to have a balance. We want to to honor God with, with all of our life. So how can we handle our money in our marriages that tells the story of your love for Jesus? Our money should tell that he is our first love, that he is our greatest devotion. If you go a little further down in the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, and you look at verse 24, it says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, money is consistently portrayed as God's chief competition. That is to say that we will more often than not look to money more than any other source to do for us what God wants to do for us. We might say, well, with enough money, I'll, I'll be secure. Money kind of marks my significance in life. Money is my identity. I find my identity in money. Money really communicates to me my worth, my value. We start to look to money to do the things that God wants to do for us, and it robs our affections. It robs our love. It robs our hearts. And so this is what I want to do. I want to do this on the back of your bulletin. If you haven't been following me so far, you want to fill in what we have left here because I put together a few clues that your love for money may be competing with your love for God. I think it's fair. It's fair for us to examine our hearts. And by the way, the end goal to all of this is your freedom. It really is, and it has everything to do with financial freedom and blessing and what God wants to do in your life. And so here it is. Clue number one. You think your money belongs to you. That's one way, one clue we can tell that that maybe my money is competing with my love for God. 
You think that your money is yours. And so where we need to begin and where we address the subject is with theology. Understanding some basic principles that everything belongs to God. That if we begin with the premise that everything belongs to God, then the subject of money becomes much more clear. But if we think that my money is my money, and it starts to then battle with God and struggle with God, if we don't recognize that everything is God's and that He allows me or He has blessed me with certain things, I think it all belongs to me. I think it's all mine. And that's contrary, really, to Scripture. Because when you look at it, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is an issue of ownership. And one way you know a person is confused on their ownership theology is that they don't want anyone else to tell them how to spend their money. They don't want anyone else to tell them how they should handle their money. Why? Because it is their money. For example, if you have a job where you oversee a budget and you know that that money in that budget is not your money, you have to watch where it goes. You have to follow the expenditures. You have to keep account of where the money goes and where it comes from. You know you will have to give an account for how it's spent. Why? Because it's not your money. But if you handle your money as your money, you don't think that way. Well, it's, it's mine. It really doesn't matter what I do with it because it's mine. It doesn't really matter, and it shouldn't really matter to anyone else. Well, one person it does matter to above everyone else is it really does matter to God. But if you know everything belongs to God, then, then you ask this question, God... How how do you want me to spend the money that you've entrusted me? God, how how do you want me to be a good steward of the resources that you have given me? And when we understand that everything belongs to God, it allows us to be much more generous. Because the God who has entrusted you with his money is a generous God. Don't ever forget that's the bottom line. We serve a generous God. Generosity beyond our wildest imagination. Generosity beyond anything that you can ever comprehend. Now, tell me if I'm quoting this scripture in the right or wrong way. I've done this before. So some of you should be clued in here. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but they should have everlasting life. Right or wrong? It's wrong. It's wrong because the glue that holds John 3.16 together, the the impact, the influence, the impetus, the power of John 3.16 is that one phrase that says that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his first and he gave his best. You see, that's what makes John 3.16 your favorite. It's not the theology of John 3.16. It is that God showed that he was generous, and the way he did that is he gave. He gave his only begotten son. So here we go. Clue number two. Clue number two that money is competing with your love for God is giving is what you do with the leftovers, which is how really and honestly most of us approach giving. 
It's, it's not that we're not giving. It's just that we give what we have left over. And when we come to church at the end of the week, we've, we've had a lot of expenditures. Life, it's expensive. And we, especially when we're raising kids, it, it costs. There's, there, there, it costs us. But, but, but when we get to the end of the week and we, we come to church, we, we look in our wallet and we say, well, oh, wow, I have, I have, I have 20 bucks here. This is what I have at the end of the week after I've taken care of all my bills, all my expenditures. I, I think I'll give that to God, and we give it to God, and we feel good about it. We say, well, this is what we've given to God, and this is what I had in my, my wallet, and it isn't God so lucky to have me. And God's so blessed by me. But that's not how the Bible teaches about giving. You can go way back to Genesis chapter 4, and you read the story of Cain and Abel. And we know the contention that was going on between those two brothers. And I want to explain just a little more where that contention probably came from. And when you look at different versions and you go to the original language, you find some things that you, you didn't recognize before. <clears throat> and that this is what Cain, Cain and Abel were dealing with. You see, Cain, the Bible says, was the farmer. And what he would do is this, that at the the time that the crops were to come in, he would take the first of those crops. And what he would do is he would go into the field after he took the first, and he would glean what was left over, and that was his offering to God. That's what he gave God. And that gives us really good reason to understand why God said, you know, Cain, you're just... You're bugging me. You know, this is not really what I asked. And, and, and the reason that I want and, and appreciate what Abel has done is Abel was a, he was a rancher. He was a man who dealt with livestock. What he did is he took the first and the best unblemished of his livestock, and that's what he gave to God. So when people say to me, well, this whole idea of giving and tithing, I say, ah, it's, that's archaic, it's Old Testament, it's the law. Well, let me say this, even before the law was established, God established this principle. Your law argument just went out the door. Sorry about that. Because that's sometimes what people say. Listen, God established and put a principle in place for his people to give what's called a tithe, a 10% of their income that would go to him, not leftovers, but the first and the best. Abraham and Melchizedek is another wonderful, marvelous illustration, an example of what God instituted in the principle of tithing before the law was ever created, before the law ever came around. Because what God is saying is money competes with me more than anything else in your life. And Abraham understood that. And one thing we know about Abraham's life, what was he? Incredibly generous, incredibly hospitable. He was a man who God said, now there's the faith that others can follow. So, if we believe everything already belongs to God, that seems pretty fair, doesn't it? Pretty reasonable. The Bible says that when we refuse to give to God back what is His, it's not a failure to be generous. The Bible says it's actually stealing from God. That it's robbing from God. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. 
So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offering, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Let me give a a contemporary version of this, or something that we can all understand. Let's say that you have a rich uncle, and some of us wish we did have a a rich uncle. But let's say you have a rich rich uncle, and he comes to you, and he he says, Hey, what I want to do is I want to give you $10,000 a month. I, I want to give you $10,000 a month, right? I, that's what I want to do. It's in my heart to do. But this is what I, I, I need you to do. I need you to give back to me $1,000 a month so that I can take care of some expenditures that go out with that $10,000, taxes and other things, uh, that you would just give back to me $1,000. Don't you all wish you had an uncle like that? Give you that kind of, It sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It's exactly what God is asking you to do. It's exactly what he's asking you to do. He's saying everything is his. And we aren't to give him the leftovers. God asks us to give him back 10% and not the leftovers. Malachi talks about bringing in the whole tithe. And when we don't obey God in this, it is clearly robbing from God. And here's what happens. I want you to listen to this. This, 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 what, this is what happens over the years in a lot of churches. And a lot of pastors, including myself, this is what I've done. I've taken the principle, the biblical principle of giving and tithe. And, uh, and I know it's really hard. It's a hard thing to do. People are in debt. They're strapped. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. And, 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 it, and, and it feels like there, there's a lot to ask, especially when the average Christian only gives 2 to 3%. And I've said things like this. Well, why don't you start at 4% and make your goal 6%? I've said that. I've said that to people. And I've also said other things like, just give what you can because I know 10% can be very uncomfortable. I've also said, you know, God bless those that can and cannot give. There's an implication there. And... The instruction that I have given you over the years is not, it's not biblical. And I've done you a disservice through, through my sin of omission. You know, it was never in my heart to intentionally hurt anyone, but, but I've hindered the fullness of God's blessing and freedom in your life by not teaching consistently on the principle of tithe. And as a pastor, I... I kind of wonder what kind of doors I've opened that shouldn't be opened. By not teaching on the principle of tithe, especially when tithing is a personal practice 
of our family. And I've seen personally the blessings that come. I've also unwittingly opened the doors and I think I've made us susceptible to self-indulgence and greed. And today I repent. And I ask your forgiveness. Because it's not biblical. I want you to listen to the strong language of the Apostle Paul and what he says in Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Remember we referred to this last week when we dealt with sexual impurity. And this is what it says. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. What is Paul doing there? He's mentioning things, sins in our life that change the very person we are intended to be, the very person that God has made us to be. You see, sexual immorality, we found out, rewires our brain. Pornography rewires our brain. Impurity rewires our brain. And what Paul is saying here is so does greed. You you, you look at greed and you think, well, that's an economical sin. And and yet he's throwing in another kind of sin here. Ah, He knows exactly what's happening. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person, is an idolater. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, and has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You see, in, in Scripture, the absence of giving their tithe is replaced with the spirit of greed, and God knew that would happen. And can I say this? Greed is greedy. It won't only consume your money. It will consume what it wants to consume. It'll consume your sexuality. It'll consume relationships. It'll break families. It'll tear people apart. It it shows no discretion for who you are. It doesn't matter what position you hold in life. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how little money you make. If you open the door, it comes flying in and says, thank you very much. I'm just going to have my way. Greed is not discreet. As Malachi puts it, it will devour and devastate whatever it wants. Greed does not confine itself just to money. And that's why Paul mentions it in Ephesians 5.3. was in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We give out of the shadow of the cross. We give out of the riches of Christ. We give out of the promise of eternal life. So 10% from the Old Testament should be the place that we start in the new covenant that was purchased by his blood. We're blessed people. We know what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As a Christian who believes everything is God's, to say that giving five or six is okay, just think about it. That's not how we or I handle other areas of disobedience. Not at all. What if 
What if someone came to me or you and confessed that they were caught in the addiction of pornography? And I said back to them, well, you know, I, I, I know it would really be hard for you just to stop because this is a long-standing habit. So why don't you do this? Why don't you just cut back a little bit? Yeah, do this. Just watch porn half as much as you normally watch porn, and you'll be okay. You can, you can manage that. You can live through life. Good counsel. Horrible. Someone came to me and said, you know, I'm in this adulterous relationship, and I'm struggling to get out. And I say to them, well, just, you know what, just don't, just, you know, half the visits. You know, just, just have sex with them half the time that you normally do, and, and you'll be okay. Really? Or what do you think my AA friends would say to me if a fellow alcoholic came and confessed that he was drinking eight to ten glasses of wine a day? And my response was, listen, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I, I know it's hard. So why don't you do this? Why don't you just cut back to four or five glasses a day? See if you can manage that the rest of your life. And all my AA friends are chuckling right now, as they should be. That is ridiculous. That's not the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's not the freedom that Jesus intends for us to have. It's not how we understand surrendering ourselves to him. You know, I know this might be hard. I know this is difficult. We've walked through difficult times But we want to know and we want to understand that this is a principle. And because it's difficult doesn't mean we're not supposed to do it. Because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean we capitulate and throw our hands in the air and say, I just can't do this. That's not how we deal with other sins in our life, other areas of disobedience. So so what I want to do, like I did last week, is I want you to know there are resources. Maybe you need to sit down and have a good conversation with your spouse. Maybe you need to sit down and have a good conversation with a financial counselor. Maybe you need to go to Dave Ramsey. Maybe you need to read some information and get some books. There are all kinds of resources out there if you want them. I've provided them, and I'll I'll show them again at the end of the, the service. But we have a great book called A Blessed Life by Robert Morris. Financial Coaching by Chuck De, De, Chuck De Serrano. Can be, you can look at all that up. You see it. Love and Respect, Building Blocks. Love and Respect deals with communication, finances. We have Dave Ramsey coming up. And listen, there's an all-church congregational meeting because you might be asking, how does the church spend God's money? Come and find out. We'll, we'll show you how we do it. We tithe, by the way. So you're not being asked to do something that someone else isn't doing. We want to make sure that you understand this is where God has us today. I know this isn't easy or or comfortable. But we do this in light of what Jesus has done for us. And the last one, clue number three. Clue number three that money might be competing with your love for God is this. You think this sermon is stupid. You know, you're just sitting there going, this is stupid stupidest thing. I don't want to hear this. I didn't come to church to hear you talk to me about money. Tell me what I need to do with my money. This is a stupid sermon. Now, I, you know, I don't know how many of you are feeling that way. I don't know how many of you, know, you're really fighting the urge to not get up and walk out. I'm not, but, but, but well, I tell you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. 
um, unless you want to. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But some of you may be thinking, this sermon is stupid. This sermon is not for me. The church is always, always trying to get into my pockets. I'm not trying to get into your pockets. Let me tell you, the church isn't trying to get into your pockets, but I can guarantee Jesus is trying to get into your heart. That's what I can guarantee. That's what I guarantee. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is rummaging around right now in your drawer called, labeled money. He, he's, he's messing you up. You know, this might be an indication that money and stuff are getting in your way of your love for God. You know, what I've discovered about myself is the more defensive I become when listening to a sermon or a message, the more I need to hear it. And this isn't just true about money. It's true in many areas of my life. That when I go in and hear a message or, you know, put it on a podcast and all of a sudden I'm just, my blood pressure's going up and I'm sweating and I'm getting a little tense, pitting out, you know. And uh, I think, why am I acting like this? I'm acting like this because that's exactly what I need to hear. And I need to be honest with it. I have to be honest and say, this is, I can't deny this. I can't hide my head in the sand. I can't sweep this under the rug. God's after me here. And the more I, I need to hear it, and, and this isn't, again, just true about money, I, I, I know it's good for me. I know it's something God's asking me. And if you do this, if you sit down and hear what the sermon is about and you get defensive, you may want to pray and ask, oh, okay, Lord, what is it you're wanting to teach me? I'm under your lordship and and apparently you're wanting to teach me something. Lord, what are you seeing in my life that I am not seeing in my life? That's why I need you, Lord. That's why I need the Holy Spirit in my life. Just so you know, I, I, I don't do a lot of sermons on money. In fact, when people recommend teaching topics to me, money is not by far the subject requested. I just want to let you know I'm getting it out there right now. It, it's, it's not in the top five you request. You don't like, oh, yeah, I want to hear you talk about money. I just love it when you talk about money. I don't hear it in the top five. I don't hear it in the top ten. Don't hear it in the top 20. I rarely hear that request. But, but there is a, a I know, the, there is a, 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 a group of people who are excited about this. Because they've experienced the freedom that comes by tithing. They've just experienced it. And they know it. And they want everyone else to, to know it. But it's not a popular subject. It's a tough one. It's uncomfortable. Someone wrote me a, a letter, a note, a card. Isn't that cute little card? Someone wrote me this last week. By the way, thank you for your emails on the last subject. I really do appreciate it. Very, very good. It says, Pastor Ron, thank you for your courage to speak on the the harder subjects uh, these past few weeks. And this person knows that this was the subject this week. We as a body of Christ need to hear these things because we need to know what God expects from us, the church. He is coming for a bride without spot or wrinkle, covered with his righteousness. He did this. He did his part. We must now do ours and, and walk in obedience. And I, and, I, and I thought that was good. I thought that was important. That, that there are folks that are saying, yeah, I've experienced, I have experienced, I have some of you in the room today, I have experienced this. But it is a minority. 
Some of you are saying, I, I've experienced this. I, I want others to know this. I want you to listen to what Deuteronomy 14, 22, and 23 say. It says this, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. And that, that's, the, that's the money. That's the resource. Eat the tithe of your grain, bringing it in the storehouse, which was their, their area, their central area of gathering. New wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God. What, what, what this is saying is to, to me is that, that we not only are, are feasting here, that when we do what God asked to do, uh, us to do, there's the promise that it that, will be overflowing in our lives. But, but I think there's a, a bigger, bigger issue here. That what, what it can do and what it does is it can affect a community in a powerful way. And they f- experience the overflow when we live sideways this way. When we live like this, there is an outreach that happens that, that just kicks the doors of Satan right down. And it frees us. It tells us that. And I know this. Each of us can't help uh, every, one, every single person. We, we can help someone in need. And this is why we're part of a church. This is why we do what we do. So that we can all join together to make a bigger difference in more lives. And that when we love the people around us, we will show the world who we love most. And that's Jesus. A couple days ago, uh, uh, in fact, my granddaughter, she turns uh, eight tomorrow. And so we said, where do you want to go eat? And we'll take you to your favorite place to eat. And and she's funny. She said, I want to go, I want to, go to Topo Hill to have breakfast. And that's her favorite place. And, and so we took her out Friday morning. We headed to Topo Hill. And on our way there, we said, now, we're going to give you this $20. And, and when we're done eating here, Grandma and you are going to go to Fred Meyer. And you can shop around for a birthday present. And, and that's Grandma's first installment. I think there are about 10 others. But, you know, but that's just Grandma. And she says, here it is. And they went and got their nails done. And, and I said to Ella, I said, Ella, you're being given $20. Uh, you need to tithe on that. That's what the Bible says. You give it. What is that? And I, she said, I, she's asked me, what is that? And I said, well, it's, um, it's $2. It's 10%. And you can do the math. It's real easy, real easy to do the math on that. And, uh, and, and she determined in her heart she was going to give $2 uh, back to the Lord. And uh, Annette and her took off and went their way and went shopping. And Annette came back and... She called me. She says, hey, you'll never guess what happened. So what happened? She said, well, you know, Ella determined to tithe. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, everything she wanted was like half off. Everything that she wanted. She went away. What she thought she was going to spend the whole thing, she came away with money in her pocket. You see, I, I don't know all the ways God will provide and open the floodgates to you. That's his business. That's what he wants to do. He wants to open the floodgates in your life and he wants to bring you to a place of great freedom. As God goes through your drawer labeled money, remember remember the words of Malachi. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room in the storehouse. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines, your fields, will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. 
says the Lord Almighty. Whose freedom is this? Whose freedom is this? Whose freedom is this? Whose freedom is this? You got more excited last week. It took you shorter to warm up. Whose freedom is this? This is, this is really my freedom. This is my freedom. I heard that getting drug out of your heart. Ah, mine, it's mine. I know it's mine. My head's telling me it's not. It's not, but it's mine. I know it is. It is. It's our freedom in Jesus Christ. He has designed a way through his word, his owner's manual, for you to be blessed. And his word is what we follow. Would you bow your head? I'm going to ask our, our team to come forward. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.